So we're back on with Potter's or Potter's Packages or Passages number four. And we're back with Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome to you two. Welcome back. Hello. Greetings. Good to hear from all of you. And um, it's funny because we were supposed to talk about chapters eight, nine, 10, and 11 at my suggestion, no less. Um, eight, the Potions Master. Nine, the Midnight Duel. 10, Halloween. 11, Quidditch. And I happened not to finish chapter 11, even though we've all read these books many times. I wanted to read them closely and I didn't get a chance to. And so I had to beg for mercy from you two. I had to beg uh, for y'all to give me the opportunity to uh, read uh, the chapters later and catch up on the homework. And what's, what's sort of interesting and funny about that is it's like I'm attempting my best Harry Potter there because in these chapters specifically, he seems to require quite a bit of mercy from those he's engaged with, not only his his sort of friends or uh, soon-to-be friends like Hermione, but also from the administration itself and particularly from Minerva mm. McGonagall, who twice has the opportunity seemingly to expel him, um, but instead rewards him, which mm. earns him some, some derision from Hermione. So now you think you're being rewarded for misbehavior? And I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And so before we were all talking... Um, uh, I know that you had said, Sarah, that you, you were very interested in the narrator. You said that you thought that the narrator was adding quite a bit to these chapters, that she seemed witty, funny. Yeah, there were a lot of moments um, where it seems like the narrator really um, uh, adds or interjects like a layer of like wry British humor. Um <laughs> I, I don't know um, how to describe it any better, but, um, you know, uh, thing, there were just so many times, I think maybe because they're finally in the throes of school and it feels like they are um, kind of in a routine of sorts um, and that we're being further immersed in the world, that there's, there were moments where I, as I was reading, I just, I, I would draw a smiley face on the side if it made me laugh, which is, impressive because I've read this before so the fact that something could still make me laugh um was was is is really good writing um but um like uh when they're first learning to fly for example and um they're all talking about um how great they are at flying even though they're probably all lying and the narrator tells us that Neville had never been on a broomstick because his grandmother had never let him near him near one. Privately, Harry felt she had a good reason because <laughs> Neville managed to have an extraordinary number of an accidents, even with both feet on the ground. You know, and like we've seen a couple, but it's just it's a funny way of saying that. Um, and uh, to me, at least it was funny. Um, and, and there is a lot of it. Just looking at page 152, I see he felt particularly hungry after the excitement of the afternoon. Or Ron was so amazed, so impressed, he just sat and gaped at Harry. Or Malfoy looked at Crabbe and Goyle, sizing them up. So you're you're really right that the narrative structure isn't just dialogue. Yeah. Um, that uh, a lot is explained by the narrator between the dialogue. Uh, the, explains the reactions and sort of how how the characters are framing their perceptions in yeah. those moments. It, it's almost as if what the narrator provides is like a very such a such a perfect frame for the moment that it is immediately um 
universally connectable or something like yeah connect- I, like um like even after like the the next day after their midnight duel after they almost get caught you know um uh in, indeed by the next morning harry and ron thought that the meeting the that meeting the three-headed dog had been an excellent adventure and they were quite keen <laughs> to have another one you know it's um it's almost as though i can hear um like your crazy grandma or your crazy grandpa uh telling the story and that's something that like a lot of fantasy literature has mm. um has as a, a characteristic that it has like an oral quality to it which reminds me of course of like epic poems that Yes. There, there's like a there's somebody who is telling us the story um, and who is giving us pieces of the story that the characters themselves aren't giving or aren't aware of, um, which I think is is pretty great. Um, uh, it's almost I, like the muse is speaking through it. And so it is being presented in an ideal fashion. The muse is speaking through J.K. Rowling or the narrator is sort of that divine consciousness that knows the nuances of a situation that helps to bring them out. Yeah. Sort of like we're sipping the coffee and it's the person that tells us the notes that we're tasting. Yeah. Uh, like they, they, they make something, the narrator is making something even funnier than it would be. I think like for, like also when they, um, Neville had somehow managed to melt Seamus's cauldron into a twisted blob <laughs> and they're pushing the seeping across the stone floor, you know, like, yeah. Of course, of course, then like every story has a narrator, but just it, the narrator sometimes seems to be um, like seeing it with us and, mm-hmm. and like narrating what they see in a way that's witty or to me, it just, it smacks of British wryness, um, like making something smaller if it's a really big deal or making a big deal out of something small. Um, I, I, I like that. It seems to be something of an answer to the old koan, the Buddhist koan, if a tree falls in the forest, uh, doesn't make it sound because it's almost as if the delivery of the message is connected to the personality which delivers it. And the personality Mm -hmm. is that which focuses our attention on specific aspects. And so it's like we wouldn't even receive or see the story in the same way if the personality sharing with us weren't constituted in such a way as to be attentive to those aspects. Mm -hmm. because of how the narrator or J.K. Rowling or the muse speaking through her sees the world, that we see the world in that way and we find it so pleasant. Um, because hmm. we don't see the world exactly as she does, though we can understand how she does see the world when she presents it to us in an articulated fashion. Mm-hmm. But I want to I pause on that for one second because when we first started, I know that we all, we all took, uh, we decided the sorts of characters that we would be like. And I recall that uh, Wes not only said that he was a Hufflepuff, and I do want to ask you about that existential crisis you had over the last week, thinking about which house you were in, Sarah. Hufflepuff <laughs> or Gryffindor. And I know you've done some work on this, and you shared this with me earlier, and the listeners just have to hear. But, but Wes, our guy mm-hmm. Neville, the guy you identified with the most, he's had a tough few chapters. He's getting <laughs> locked out of uh, the Gryffindor common room because he can't remember anything and doesn't have his remember all to help him. <laughs> Picked on by Malfoy, and he's getting uh, he's getting on a broom for the first time, and it's dropping him on the ground. And he's he's the first person we see get with serious consequences uh-huh. that there are serious consequences at this magical school. And then and then he he has to go see this Cerberus like Fluffy. And I just wondered, 
we, we get we start to get these differentiations of characters. We have a Neville now who seems to have a specific personality. We have a Draco Malfoy. We have a Hermione. But I was I guess I wanted to focus on Neville some. And what is it that we're seeing with him exactly? Why are we getting this uh, consistent introduction to his sort of bumbling behavior, though he happens to be in Gryffindor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, he seems to me to be a, a, a kind of shadow of Harry. They're born on the same day. We find out later. Um, and uh, I, I totally identify with Neville in a lot of ways. Um, his um, remember all is cool because it it only lets him know that that he has forgotten something, not what he has forgotten. So it's <laughs> it's 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 a great image of the um, kind of Socratic moment of uh, aphoria, right? Like I know that I don't know and the, the bottom falls out and so what do I do now and that's a great image for for learning and teaching and I think these chapters for me is where the, the story picks up because we're finally at Hogwarts and uh, we see what a school could be like you know and maybe what school is like if you have the the right perspective on it this kind of wry playful and serious at the same time uh, way of seeing the world that that the narrator kind of uh, demonstrates for us. Uh, we see, like you say, all the characters come into their own and and the ways that Neville does this, I mean, so in some ways, Harry recognizes the importance of Malfoy for his uh, his success here, right? If Malfoy hadn't stolen the Remember All, he wouldn't have gotten picked for the Quidditch team. But it's also because of Neville's forgetfulness and his like going up on the broom and falling and having to be taken to the infirmary. That's also crucial. And, and Neville's, ah. you know, participation in these events, though, though small, when you go back and read it again, you, you can really pick up that he's in some ways like the most important character in this book. You know, <laughs> I, I just I just love Neville. Yeah, he's the best. Well, yeah, and that is interesting that it seems as if you're if you're going to be the hero, you have to have the impediments. Even even characters within your own stories will serve as obstacles or impediments, but they're necessary constituents of your story if you want to be a hero, because you have to be the sort of person who overcomes tremendous obstacles. And in fact, we got a a foreshadowing of the ultimate obstacle, right? With this three-headed dog. But also, but also because of Neville's bumbling, because he can't he can't settle his own fights, someone often has to step in to help him, whether it be Hermione on on the train to help him find his his rat, or toad. not his rat, his toad, uh Trevor, Trevor the sure. Toad, excuse me. <laughs> and uh, uh or or in this case where he can't defend himself against Malfoy, uh Harry has to, and in fact, uh uh, people speak out on Harry's behalf when McGonagall shows up saying, he ha- no, it's not his fault, fault. He, because he broke the rule, but he, he, he o- obeyed a deeper rule, which is fight for good rather than evil. But one point you said, which I wanted to hone in on is how a school can be and what it, and how things move along once you're at the school, because this is something that actually Harry notices. He, he hadn't even noticed it had been two months and that it was Halloween at this school because he seemed to love it so much. And, also, I just wanted to bring up the fact that the corridors or the not only do the paintings move or the characters within the paintings, but the stairways move as yeah. well. So the environment, so the school models the environment, not only in terms of showing the sky above the Great Hall, but also in terms of ever shifting around the students. So they have to be figuring out how to get to their uh the means that they have to utilize in order to get to their goals are constantly changing. And so that's, that's very deeply interesting. And we get our first introduction to the game of Quidditch. It's rules. It's uh, three positions and it's three sorts of balls. 
and um, and the uh, and just how it works, um, yeah. which is again, you know, just to your point that that's one of the fun aspects of school, one of the the elements of recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I found I found the uh, the the e- easily the most boring class was the history of magic. Oh, which was Professor the only one Benz. taught by a ghost. Professor Binns had been very old indeed when he had fallen asleep in front of the staff room fire and got up next morning to teach, leaving his body behind him. Binns droned on and on while they scribbled down names and dates and got Emmerich the Evil and Uric the Oddball mixed up. And so we, uh, we see that, you know, there is still like the boring school, you know, <laughs> class, mm-hmm. which is the history of magic, which sounds like the coolest class because... There, there's like clearly these these vital stories there. One day in the far future, Harry Potter's own story will be taught to the kids in history of magic, and they'll think it's just as boring, right? As long as Binz <laughs> is teaching it. Um, and the same goes for the uh, defense against the dark arts, right? Like everyone's looking forward to defense against the dark arts, but Quirrell's lessons turned out to be a bit of a joke, right? So there's so much emphasis on on like you say the the personalities that um, that kind of uh, bring this this place to life as well as the place itself being dynamic and moving and constantly mysterious you know things revealed and then concealed again yeah that's true and interesting because we're all teachers and something i noticed this time around besides the fact that i i love almost everything that hermione says and that she thinks (laughs) i can see why that'd be so annoying to young boys like when she says to them in that bot when she stays up late at night to keep them from sneaking out knowing that they would try to sneak out in order to lecture them that they will lose all the hard-earned points that she won it's like she's a winner she's a winner (laughs) she's smart she understands that that is an egocentric thing for harry to do there are no points that he can possibly win in the game in the hogwarts house cup game he can win maybe personal ego points but she she is correct to point out to him that this is a foolish thing to do which will most likely uh resolve in failure and the only reason that it doesn't result in massive complete failure is because of her right and so uh just (laughs) but but the thing that i noticed that i thought was so interesting is that snape is described like mcgonagall as not having to do anything in order to control his classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, can just, I can I ask yeah. like yeah, yeah. as a teacher? I mean, we're all teachers. Did you guys see any? I mean, did you recognize any of your self <laughs> in any of these teachers? I mean, like that. Like when when um the first time Malfoy took the remember all wasn't on the Quidditch pitch. It was on. It was like in some courtyard or some plaza and McGonagall walks by and she says, you know, is there anything like what's the trouble? And the way that the narrator described her is Professor McGonagall, who could spot trouble quicker than any teacher in the school, was there in a flash. And and I just like maybe it's just because I'm I'm finishing up eight years at an all boys school. But I feel like that was (laughs) I had to be I mean, like that was me in my classroom like you could just you could see it brewing and you just you you nip that in the bud right like and 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 i i'm sure we all have our own tactics for that like obviously snape just like bullies his students but (laughs) but but the thing is is like i know teachers like who are sort of snape like who are like mean to like me students and said like like oh you thought that was impressive well it's not sit down and shut up you know like um I would I mean I that's not a lie to say that 
it, it would be to say that I've heard that before in the classroom of someone else. Like, um, so I'm just curious if, if there's anything like that just struck you as, wow, that seems awfully real. Well, yeah, Wes, what do you think? I definitely have some connections here. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I'm obviously most like bins, but, I, <laughs> but I'm also a bit like Flitwick because I'm actually a substitute teacher now. So most of what I do is just call roll. And so Flitwick standing on the pile of books, that's me. You know, I'm not smart, but I've read a lot of books. So I'm standing on a pile of books to see over the desk and I, and I get to the roll call and I, and I topple out of sight when I'm going to be. So that's, that's totally me, Flitwick all the way. Yeah, I would say I, I have some Snape-like qualities in that I keep my, my room under control and I like to give uh, poetic speeches like he does in the beginning about brewing power if they have the and also you know having little aristocratic sayings and they're like if you have the skill to learn this subtle art not you know not hiding the fact that mastery of the material i teach is nearly impossible and almost nobody achieves it but the, you know trying to lay out the game for the students in a sophisticated way to be like, okay, yeah. well, you've played some video games and you've taken some classes and read some books before. Welcome to the real game. Mm -hmm. and, um, um, and also, I would say I have a degree of McGonagall and just that, I, I mean, I think that she and Snape have a lot of qualities in common. They do both deeply care about things. She doesn't seem to bully uh, students in the same way that Snape does or show favoritism. Um, she seems to be a more fair or a more just teacher not just picking students out and asking them questions surely they would not know but also that she she like snape has a certain regard for just how serious magic is she seems to see the end of these lessons it's not just about performing in front of them or getting through a class but that they may be one day fighting against voldemort or some other great well, no. powerful but you notice, yeah. Well, so you notice that when they take on the troll when they take on the troll it's the charm that saves the day so yeah, it's the way. Yes. Uh, so I was just gonna say, um, Alex, earlier at the like at the beginning, you mentioned um, how you how we were merciful to you, and how um, <laughs> and how like Harry needed mercy, and I and then you mentioned the word just that McGonagall is a very just teacher, and I guess I'm I'm I guess I'm curious about the use of those two words because, um, you know most schools are bound by a set of rules, codes of conduct for student behavior and teacher behavior. And Harry broke the rule, but, uh, but by, you know, by getting on his broomstick and um, flying around when Madam Hooch wasn't there, he fundamentally broke a rule, but um, she chooses to uh, go find Oliver Wood and tell and say like, sh instead of being caring so much about the rule, she, she sees like the skill behind the rule breaking. And I, I think also like, I don't know, from my experience teaching all boys, like I think it's, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I know I've done it before where a kid um, breaks a rule or fails to live up to a, a standard, but in that quote unquote failure or breaking of something it actually opens up something much bigger and like you get to see, Oh wow, maybe this kid has this really awesome skill or passion. And like, how can I move that some in some right direction for his, his good? Like, it seems to me that like, um, 
she, I mean, that that is, that's a, a kind of radical mercy when it comes to the rules, but it's also a kind of justice when it comes to like what, what education is about. Like not every kid's going to be a great flyer. Not every kid's going to be a great potions master. So helping them figure out what is their best place, even if it means breaking a couple rules, I guess I'm just curious, like, are you, what do you mean when you, when you use those words? And do you think like, well, I think she has a good balance of justice and fairness. Okay. You consider those the two poles of discipline and that justice is giving somebody what they deserve, right. uh, um, whether they've done something good or bad and not sparing them the rod, as it were. Um, I think she's good at that. But also knowing when not to be simply just, but to be merciful because people, of course, are weak-willed and sinful and young and young people in particular don't even or in particular don't even know all the nuances of the rules or all the rules themselves but do you and so well one thing i think she recognizes is the sort of meta rules the rules yeah. not simply of the school and institution but the rules of human development and of human character so what she rewards harry for uh she rewards him for his bravery at first mm -hmm. and, and his skill and dexterity um and what you you seem to hit on that she hits on is that she sees and she sees that he has a natural fire that he has a gift that other people do not have that requires that it be tended to in a unique way. Um, but something interesting I think about that is that um, she's she's not <laughs> even when Harry does extraordinary things like help to defeat the troll though it is really Ron I would give the majority of the credit to though Harry has the initial brave act of jumping on its back the brave <laughs> and stupid act. Right. But what. Harry's not rewarded in the same way that Hermione is rewarded by the institution. Mm. Rather than winning lots of points, he only mm. ends up winning five points total. But he's becoming a hero in our eyes. And so he's winning the much bigger game that's not necessarily institutionally rewarded. And just two notes about Minerva McGonagall being Athena. One, she takes Harry to a guy named Oliver Wood. Olive Wood. The olive tree is what mm -hmm. Minerva or Athena gave to the Athenians to defeat the gift of Poseidon of the horse in order to, uh, or the fountain in order to uh, win the name of Athens. And also she sends an owl, the animal of Athena, with a message to Harry Potter telling him when he will first practice um, on the Quidditch mm -hmm. field. And I know that owls are always sent as messengers, but it's funny that she sends, uh, she sends him a letter by message and it is an owl. And it's telling him to go to be with Oliver Wood. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I digress. Sorry. No, that's great. That's great. No, no, I was just going to say, I think I, but I think um, uh, he, he, he learns more in, or like, I guess maybe my, my question might be more about education than it is about Harry Potter. Hmm. But do you think it's better to be like, I don't know. Do you think, what do you think is a better educational tactic, being merciful or being just? Or is it a kind of a balance of the two? Because it really, I mean, what she opens up for him by bringing him to Oliver Wood or Olive Wood is something so much grander than like detention ever would, right? Like, um, like detention is what he deserves, or maybe even expulsion is what he deserves. Like, um, do you think that that mercy is a better tactic or do you think that this story is maybe presenting that as mercy is a better is like a way that a, a way that you learn more or you, hmm. i don't know well wes why don't you start with that and then maybe i can add something sure yeah i, th I think the the point that we seem to be seeing here is like the the school is this kind of 
environment within which there are some rules and there's also some nested um, layers of them. There's also some games, right? So there's like this kind of um, positive reinforcement of getting points and playing Quidditch. And of course the, uh, the intrinsic value of like learning so that you don't walk in the wrong corridor and get eaten by Fluffy, right? Like it's pretty <laughs> clear that you wanna, you wanna stay on top of all of that. Um, so the, the environment itself seems super important and the rules and boundaries and um, the leading points, games, things that it, it does to, to draw you out. All of that seems to operate within, within a system that you might call justice. But then the mercy, I think, is embodied in the characters a lot more, the individuals, like we we're pointing mm. out the personalities, including the narrator herself, right? So she can, she can give this kind of even-handed um, portrayal of Harry as brave and stupid as he makes the leap <laughs> and sticks his wand up the nose of the troll, right? But at the same time, you know, the ultimate moral of that chapter is like, this is how you make friends. You know, you you lock them in yeah. the bathroom and then you rescue them from the troll. Like now you're friends. <laughs> so so mercy <laughs> has to do with, I think, yeah, seeing people as personalities, the flaws and the good side of it and and embracing that all within the kind of larger category of, of friendship and um, yeah. and what it's and all just, about. Just to agree with that, it's um, if you look from both the punishing yeah. perspective of McGonagall or the rewarding perspective in terms of giving the 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 Nimbus 2000, as well as five points to Ron and Harry, as well as the action of Harry and Ron, you see that what has to mitigate between justice and mercy, you can't simply apply the rules as they are from a traditional perspective because it's a novel situation with novel um, intentions and actions that have happened within it. So you have to use the logos. You have to take the, fa the factors of the situation into account, weigh them and give your, your own arbitrated decision and so what what seems to be the the ultimate thing that a good educator can do is to effectively wield the conscious mind or the logos or the rational intellect in order to appropriately apply justice or mercy to a specific novel situation in the same way um, and I think that that befits the action of Harry and Ron, who themselves had to use their minds, had to make a conscious decision mm -hmm. of what they did, right? First and foremost, they went to save Hermione at great risk to themselves and her. Then they tried to save everybody from the troll. Then they realized that they were going to sacrifice the one for the many, and they were unwilling to do that. They, they did a sort of a very Christian thing in that, in that I, moment, right? Rather than sacrificing Hermione alone for everyone else, which Hermione might have even agreed would have been the intelligent thing to do, right? Instead of sacrificing two of them even for one of her, they went in there and they attempted to get its attention off her because they felt bad because they felt themselves at fault for her being there in the first place, which I guess adds an additional wrinkle to the situation. Mm -hmm. but, but it's almost as if using the logos is brave, but does not guarantee safety that you have to use your conscious mind when you're in a new situation you can recognize as new and you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be, but you know in order to get the best outcome, you have to use your head. You have to generate a new solution. And it's almost as if that is what McGonagall mirrors in Harry and Ron in giving them that seemingly magical, completely unexpected, um, for the second time in a couple chapters, solution right because for the second time in a row we see where you should be punished according to the rules potentially even 
in a major way, expulsion, we see a minor reward being given um, or maybe even major reward. If you consider getting five points in the house cup much better than being expelled, um, mm-hmm. which it's funny. It's funny that Harry actually went, he went through the whole imaginative consequences of getting expelled and perhaps being Hagrid's assistant <laughs> and watching Ron <laughs> and Hermione all become wizards. And he felt how sick that would make him be. And it's like, well, you know, I wonder if that's how Hagrid felt as well. But that, that's my, that's my sort of long winded answer to, I think you have to uh, probably through experience and skill use, use logos or use consciousness in order to appropriately apply um, mercy or justice. Mm-hmm. And that I see McGonagall as a mm-hmm. fairly ideal ability to do that. And in fact, in, in the next book, I think, well, that's something Albus Dumbledore will say, right? Snape will say, if I had the ability to expel you, I would. And Dumbledore will say, well, then it's a good thing. It's not your decision. Um, so, hmm, hmm. so, Wes, before we got on, you were talking about, you were saying that there are two characters in particular that you notice who, who want to make an impression on Harry or want to make an impression on the world. And you were noticing Hermione as well as Draco, but then they had, they had differing methods by which, yeah. by which they wish to gain their, their fame or their reputation, as it were. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, reading it again and again, get this kind of idea of the kind of larger patterns that Rowling or the narrator's playing with here. So looking at, like we did already, Snape and McGonagall, you can see how they're sort of parallels to each other in some ways. And I think that uh, Draco, Malfoy, uh, and Neville, I compared already how they're sort of driving the plot in these chapters. But I think you can also compare Malfoy and Longbottom in, in a similar fashion. Or sorry, not Longbottom, uh, Granger, uh, Hermione. You can compare them too because mm. they, they both want to get the attention of Harry. Um, they want to. They seem to want to uh, constantly pester him and and let let him know that they're there and they're available to be friends or to to be you know uh, played with and and joked around with and uh, and they do they do it in opposite ways. Uh, you know Malfoy through overt conflict and Hermione through trying to be helpful all the time, right? Trying to like do what's best for them. Um, and it's interesting that they don't really seem to get it in either respect, right? They, uh, and the story just sort of plays out where rather than being won over to Dra- Dracoy and his nefarious play, they're instead won over to Hermione and her self-sacrificing. Um, and I think that's, yeah, again, like sort of a, a pretty blunt moral lesson that's spelled out there at the end of Halloween chapter. And it, what's interesting is it seems to be the lessons that both Draco and Hermione learn from the actions of Harry t- seem to be different on account of that too. Whereas Draco experiences the explicit horror of seeing his entrapment not work on Harry and in fact blow up in his face. <laughs> in fact, multiple times he's tried to entrap Harry. For one, he got on the broom through the remember all, tried to get him expelled, thought he got him expelled. For two, he invited him to a duel, told Argus Filch, remember Argos is the, the yeah, creature with infinite eyes that guards Io <laughs> as a cow. And uh, Argus Filch is act, and Filch means to steal. And so he, with Mrs. Yep. Norris, is tipped mm-hmm. off to Harry's location. Again, Harry should get expelled. And then Harry should get killed by Fluffy, but Hermione helps with that. And so when, when Draco sees that Harry has received a, 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 a broom, he tries to get Professor Flitwick uh, to show that, or 
he tries to get Harry in trouble by telling uh, Flitwick that a first year has a broom, which they're not allowed to have. And Flitwick shows that he knows about these special circumstances and is very happy. And then, in fact, Harry says, yeah, thanks to Draco. And then Draco realizes with horror what's happening, that Harry, yeah. it, it, it may be an initial realization, but what he realizes is, is his place in the story is opponent who fails against hero. And his mouth is gaping <laughs> open. Whereas Hermione, she bends a little, right? Even though she... At first, it seems like she might be one of those bookish sorts who's just good at school. No, she's highly competent. She helps the boys. She knows how to unlock the door to get them into uh, Fluffy's lair. She also is the one that notices that there's a trap door under Fluffy. And then she's the one who risks her reputation and points and uh, entrance into this magical world because if she gets expelled, she's gone from the magical world totally because of her muggled parents in order to help these boys. It's as if she breaks out of her initial category because of her exposure to the heroic um, and, and starts to develop her own heroic path too. It's, she, seem, she seems to, in a way, for me, to, to mirror Harry, that she is, she is now showing her willingness like McGonagall, like Harry, to go beyond the rules in order to do the right thing. And that, like you said, it seems that doing the right thing for someone else or sacrificing for someone else is at the root of the development of friendship. Yeah. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Which, which is almost like you were saying that there are some games and there are some traditions and some rules at this school suggesting that the most important thing you learn at school isn't simply the magic, but the magic of developing relationships. That those all act as the sort of specific impediments or constraints that allow you to develop friendship with those around you. Um, which is, you know, if friendship is that which uh, maintains trust between people, then that is what is the, at, a, at the root of all communities. Suggesting that the great magic is the friendship at Hogwarts. Yeah. Hmm. But I don't know if that makes any sense. I'll have to listen back to it afterwards and uh, put my head in my hands during. Hmm. So what did y'all think about? Oh, and I guess one last thing is I would say not only Snape and McGonagall, if I'm, if I'm just jumping back to answering the question about what sort of teacher I'm like, I'd say I'm a little bit, bit like Madame Hooch too. Sort of sporty. Hmm. And I sort of expect the students just to sort of listen and do it. There's a lot of just embodying things in my class without having to articulate them. It's like, okay, say, yeah. up, say up, then you get your stick in your hand. Okay, we're going to fly now. It's like, we're not going to get into all the unnecessary details at all the time. Some things you're just going to be expected to do or to learn how to do while we're learning bigger, more important things. Not that I don't focus yeah. on fundamentals. I think they're absolutely important, but sometimes I, I think some things can be taken for granted. Um, yeah, I could I could pick up on that. I think it's important that Hermione is nervous about this class for that very reason, right? It's not something yeah. you can learn in a book. It's not something you can really prepare for. You just have to do it. And I think to her, to your point about her learning from them, I think an important moment there is when she overhears Ron saying, you know, it's no wonder, it's no wonder no one can stand her. Uh, she's a nightmare, honestly. And <laughs> And so she overhears herself um, from their perspective uh, and it really, you know, it wounds her. Like, 
I don't think that we see quite the same thing with Malfoy, where he he uh, he does have that moment of realization, but it it takes place in a slightly different fashion. It takes place in an agonistic, direct, confrontational fashion. Well, whereas here, that's... actually, learn from it. Like, she's crying yeah. because she thinks it's true because she's understood what she sacrificed for her position in the dominance hierarchy, as it were. She's the top student, but she's at a lonely top. And um, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think about, so what would it, what would it look like? And maybe, you know, just throwing out some ideas, but like, what would it look like to actually um, uh, educate Draco then? Like, is he, is he redeemable at this point? Uh, now that he's like, he's got that recognition as well, but it takes place in a different fashion. Is it, is it too late now that he's realized it in the way that he has, or can he similarly be given this kind of dramatic moment of, um, of, of learning? Uh, I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, Sarah, Sarah, what do you think? Well, I, I know I've asked that question before, even yeah. like, is, is, uh, are there, are there some like just wholly good or wholly bad characters who are just beyond redemption? Um, you know, to me, um, kind of related to what you were saying before Alex about like is there is part of what they're learning besides you know history and herbology all of that is part of what they're learning like how to be a member of a team how to like take care of each other certainly in Gryffindor you start to see like Hermione takes care of Neville um then Harry and Ron (laughs) care of Neville sub sub major (laughs) yeah Harry and Ron allow Neville and Hermione to come with them to the midnight duel you know like learning learning to um to handle different personalities um and and like transform them as you said into some kind of community like what kind of magic is that um and is that the is that the magic of the primary world that we can that we can like duplicate is some the kind of friendship that they learn um that they learn and i guess to 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 tie it back to the kind the question of mercy i really think that like i i think that characters um uh, someone like Draco is redeemable um, through like constant shows of mercy. And the thing about mercy is that um, it's, it's only mercy if it's free, it's, if it's undeserving and like kind of freely given. And um, I think that Harry's at this point, Harry's too immature to maybe understand and, and all of them, none of them are mature enough to understand like anybody else's, anybody else's story you know I, I like i flip it around if flip it around if snape had come out and seen malfoy flying around i bet harry would have wanted him to be expelled as well right um until they grow to a place where they can want something that's good for someone who is not their f- favorite or an enemy then i mean he doesn't really seem to be the kind of person who's who's redeemable from the, from the perspective of this story with Harry as the hero. Um, I mean, he has to, he has to like give and receive mercy in a way that like, I mean, no, I I don't know. I I think Harry, maybe Harry has like a natural proclivity for it in a way that other characters don't. It's interesting to me that like Ron is particularly, I think Ron is way more mean than, than um, Harry is right. Like, um, I love that line when they're preparing for the duel and when Harry says like, well, what if nothing, what if I like wave my wand and nothing happens? And Ron's like, well, then just then like haul off and smack him. Like, um, 
Ron seems like way more aggressive. Um, and he's the one who's like, he has no, he has no regrets for like what he says about Hermione. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some about Draco is that he's certainly shown himself to be clever and talented. He can ride a broom. He can yeah. figure out how to entrap and make a Harry, which is something again, Hermione notices. He tricked you. She sees the situation for how it is. She's smart. And she sees how Draco was actually smarter and less ethical than, uh, than um, Harry there. Perhaps a prefiguration of the differences between Slytherin and Gryffindor, because what we see there is the Gryffindors, like Wes said, joining together as a team and even working through having an incompetent team member that almost ruins everything and, and tries to take them all down with him, right? We learn a very powerful lesson yeah. about teamwork when Neville almost grabs Ron and knocks down the armor and we all think that same of that same moment in the Hobbit or or in the Fellowship of the Rings where Gandalf yells at the Hobbits for dropping armor in the myth in the the mines of Moria and uh, oh, yeah. and, and we're just like yeah. God Neville so incompetent you don't do anything right and get the Gryffindor way is pick him up and keep moving because if any of you go down you all go right. down whereas a Slytherin way of looking at that might be to like leave him there and help hope he gets expelled and think that that's uh that's appropriate or that's fair because he was the one that brought uh who who was incompetent in the situation but um yeah right but i think i think what we'll see eventually is that um is that a real gryffindor at the end of the day like in the in the final analysis a real gryffindor has to be able to pick up a teammate who's not in their house right mm-hmm. like or see somebody who's not in their house as a teammate as well you yeah. know what i mean like yeah and, um, and i think draco can be redeemed but not from outside only inside and i think we'll see this i think in book six yeah when he's showing that even he as a human can't get away from his moral his sort of moral framework he or his moral sense of life right we'll discover him crying several times and potentially that's right. for his own skin and potentially that's also because he doesn't want to do what it is he's tasked to do because he feels that it's immoral. Um, and so I, I do like the question of whether Draco can be redeemed. And, and I do like also differentiating the question between even if he figures as an antagonist, can he still in his own story be a protagonist or can he redeem right. himself by consciously accepting his role as antagonistic to Harry and yet still being protagonistic to his own position? Or is he I, naturally I think, antagonistic? Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, just going back to the idea of, of, uh, like mercy, like he, like you said, I think his his redemption will come from within. But what we what we will is that his redemption that does come from within is is because he has been treated better by somebody else who had who he has treated really poorly like you know like like um like harry had plenty of opportunities to treat draco the way draco treated him um and maybe there were enough in his memory um when harry didn't um and maybe again maybe that's just disposition because maybe the the slytherins are more manipulative more conniving i don't know um but i think that that internal conversion requires kind of like a, a you know a series of reflections about your 
your past external interactions. Um, no, that's my, that's my, but that that is, of course, that's very, that's getting very much ahead of us, right? Yeah. Well, at this point, he is the, he is the, he's the, he's the the guy we're supposed to, yes, I think. And so, so I know that last time we were talking, Uruguay was scoring goals and that, um, Mr. West chance most recently on bookworm games had his parents, and asked them about who was going to win the World Cup. And his mom, of course, was rooting for the same team as he was. And his dad was rooting for a team that had already lost. And, um, <laughs> 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 and so, and so uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, maybe, and this could be our last topic, a sort of recreational topic, a P at the end of the day about Quidditch and some of the, the yeah. reflections y'all had on that first practice. And, the, um, the positions of beater, chaser, keeper, and seeker. So four positions and then the three sorts of ball. What is it? There are, yeah. there are two, two bludgers that will attack you, and you need the be- beaters to hit with their bats, and that uh, Fred and George are described themselves as bludgers. So that makes me think of the entire game itself as a creative endeavor and the bludgers being sort of the insults they get thrown at those who put themselves in the arena, like like. Uh, mm-hmm. F- Theodore Roosevelt talks about in that very famous quote, which I should I should read verbatim at some point. It is it's the he in the arena that matters, not those that try and cut him down, is the gist of it. Um, but also there's the quaffle, which the three chasers can throw to each other, which is like a soccer ball, but it's red. The bludgers are black, and the golden snitch is golden with silver wings, and uh, it's as big as a walnut, whereas the quaffle is as big as a soccer ball, and the bludgers are a little smaller. And what is it? The chasers can throw the, the quaffle through one of the three um, hoops that are 50 feet high attached to like a long pole, sort of like what young children blow bubbles through is how it's actually described by the narrator, J.K. Rowling. And you get 10 points at a time when you score against the keeper on one of those three hoops. And it seems like you're actually made, the game is made for you to score, right? Three hoops and then three chasers and only one keeper seems very unfair there's constantly going to be a two-on-one and three-on-one situation so that can't be the real game but a sort of deeper underlying game sort of like the meta game we were talking about with the meta rules is the seeker has to keep from getting killed and knocked off his broom by all the insults while he does nothing effectively right and then when once he catches a snitch um he can he gets 150 points and the game comes to an end and so yeah what did y'all what did y'all think about this game and how it was presented? I know I started beginning some of my thoughts with the bludgers perhaps being insults, but yeah. Well, I like that idea that it's sort of two games in one or, or more. You know, it's it's got a surface level of tossing the ball back and forth and getting it through the hoop. And then there's this underlying or overarching game of catching the snitch, uh, which effectively is the only important part of the game as far as winning and losing is concerned, right? Like it's so much more heavily weighted. Um, Do you think it relates to the Hogwarts situation in the same way that so sort of there's the direct game that we're talking about, winning the house cup points, graduating, doing the learning uh, on the one hand, that's like the quaffle scoring, but then there are the deeper lessons of like how to build a community and also how to, how to maintain one's own individuality. Right. That kind of strikes me as what, 
what catching the snitch is. It's not only winning the game in a social communal way, but becoming your own individual self as well and following your interest. If that's what the goal of snitch indicates, following your own path no matter where it takes you, while also mm-hmm. winning the social game by not going off the grid. And that those games are actually very different looking and very hard to win. Uh, and you win them in different ways. Um, right. It's almost as if it's trying to show you just how complex life really is. That there's the seen and the known that looks so straightforward and simple to navigate. But then there's so much more going on that you and most people don't see that you have to attempt to recognize if you're going to actually win the real game. I think that, I think that there's also, I mean, right. So like as a game, it requires speed, um, agility, grace, strength, brute strength, even with those, those bludgers and the bats Precision, precision and strategy. Right. So like, um, it would be stupid to try and catch the snitch when your team is a hun- is more than 150 points down, right? So why would you end the game um, if you're just going to lose, right? So um, there's something about the seeker position that while it is like it is like the 150 points and the um, you know and, and the end of the game, like your your whole team has to be doing well enough in order for you to go ahead and do your job. That's, you know? that's and true. Like, that's true. But we and will so, see. Oh, yeah. Go on. Sorry. No, I was, I was, I was just going to say, and in addition to that, like, um, the seeker doesn't really have much else to defend him or herself with besides their own, like, flying abilities, but has to rely on the other members of their squad. I hate using that word, but um, to, <laughs> to, to protect them and... I think that, like, so while it so is, I think goals. it is, yeah, <laughs> hashtag squad goals, um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, so basic. Um, but the, um, like, there an individual quest portion that I think, like, the seeker role represents, and there's the team aspect, but but there is a relationship between the team and the individual, and, like, the individual can't succeed without the team, and the team can't succeed without the without everybody kind of doing their own individual role really, really well, which is why when you look at Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville, and the four of them, again, another four, like going on this midnight adventure through the hallways, like um, they're four really different characters with some with strengths, some with different strengths, some with no strength whatsoever. And, um, and they, I think that they, they get information and they get eventually get get home um because of all four of them in a way you know like if neville hadn't fallen would they have run all the way into this one room where there was the three-headed dog and they realized what the trap door was mm-hmm. i don't know like so um it seems i don't know i think that that's a really significant part of the of the game in addition to the fact that it's like this wonderful collect like collection of all of these like real world primary world games so that we can all understand it's something that like every reader can understand because we all understand at least one of those sports. And we all understand you know, games. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I, I think that, I think that that's significant, like very much that, um, and that there be some, some kind of specific game that like, I don't know, all these kids can rally around. It makes it, it's a great example of recovery also. Well, then, then 
makes um, me I have a specific question then. Wes, why is this game played on broomsticks with goalposts fifty feet above the ground? What is what is what's the reason for that? Does it just make it more exciting to see or why would it even make it more exciting? Uh I I guess that it um has to do with the the danger that you I think you spoke about a little while ago that that uh the the hero embodying the logos um must embrace right so it's like for everyone on the pitch or up in the air or whatever there is this uh this danger which extends up to i guess death or at least being lost in the sahara desert if you're the referee (laughs) Uh, so yeah yeah i think i think it's a kind of danger it's a kind of uh, freedom as well, right? The, those two things are are completely intermingled. So why why are and so one of Harry's first questions when he learns about the Bludgers is have they ever killed somebody? And Wood says, well, not at Hogwarts, just a couple of broken jaws. <laughs> but but that makes me wonder why is this allowed at a school? It doesn't seem like a very safe game at all. It seems very unsafe. And there how, are a lot that of things that they the learning. But I mean, there's a lot of things that they do that aren't safe at this school, right? I mean, like. Neville just, I mean, Neville in, in, in one week, it seemed like he broke his wrist and he got covered in boils, right? Like, um, Fell just, to the ground, broke his wrist, melted a cauldron, I mean, knocked over a priceless uh, suit of armor, um, lost and, his and that doesn't even And that doesn't even account for um, the various, like, land, like, emotional land landmines <laughs> poor Neville is probably like running into at all times but um I I don't know um it reminds me a little bit of something I think we've talked about previously I know um someone that you like um uh, Alex who I I have to admit I'm not I'm not the, the most familiar with this scholar but I know I listened to a podcast uh I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast one time and it was Dr. <laughs> Dr. Peterson. And I mean, I'm sure that off, off this podcast, you and I can discuss some of his ideas that I I don't really understand. Maybe I don't like. Um, But um, one of them was this idea that like, it's better to make students um, brave by, by giving them the opportunity to in a safe space, not, not in like the, you know, colloquial sense Mm -hmm. these days, but like in a school to face dangerous things so that in the world they can face dangerous things rather than right. like protect them from dangerous so things. So the opposite of Dolores and, Umbridge when she teaches right. dark arts. Right. And see, and that's, I mean, what we'll, what we'll see in, um, in the third is that the most, like the most experiential learning that they do in defense against the dark arts is also their most favorite. Yes. And it's interesting that like the thing that is um, the most predicated upon like the doing of the of the process of learning is the thing that Hermione is most afraid of I just I think it's I think it's really interesting that like all four of these kids and we haven't even talked about poor Seamus but um, all four of these kids are in Gryffindor and yet Harry's bravery is characterized as stupid when he goes Mm -hmm. to um, when he like jumps on the on the troll Hermione is brave in the classroom but not on the field Neville I don't know what kind of bravery he has demonstrated help, help. yet maybe he will eventually show moral bravery right he will show moral bravery but i also think like for neville like getting up the next morning and doing it again is kind of brave True. like 
for him. And I don't know about Ron. Maybe, maybe I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not impressed with him just yet. We'll put it that way. But like, um, but so it seems like there's, there's, that you have to put students in the area of proximal development. You have to put them in the yeah. of acceptable danger. You have to produce yeah. darkness in front of them. You have to let them get up on the broom. You need to let them play Quidditch. And even occasionally you Absolutely. need to let them fight against a troll if, if unexpectedly it comes up and it's their own moral sense that has them do it in order to save and somebody think- else. And and if you and if you're really afraid of 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 the of the the potential consequences that the students could get into, uh, right? Like then you have a really great healer in Madame Pomfrey. Like True. it, it really everything. seems like there's a solution to a lot of these problems, right? There's and, and that's maybe part of what makes this 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 school seem really unusual to me is because I, I think schools these days there are increasing amounts of rules about what kids can and can't do that's that keeps them safe to avoid lawsuits at least there are at my old school oh, yeah. um and just like an overly um a, like a, a, a phobia a deep institutional phobia of getting in trouble or like pissing off parents when like there's something to be said for a kid falling down and scraping their knee or um and then like figuring out how to handle it um, I don't know. Like that seems like a really important up is figuring out how, how to handle that stuff, and it being well, fifty feet you heard, above here, three teachers telling you to get in trouble, and that's an important t- part of getting up or growing up, but also because it teaches you to deal with the consequences as well. Well, just to like, I mean, that's what Congressman, uh, what's his name, Congressman John Lewis. Um, that's his his line is, you don't get in all kinds of trouble. You just get in good trouble and then you bear the consequences of it. That's, I mean, that's Neville Longbottom, right? You get in good trouble and you stand in the way of evil. And, um, and like, if there are consequences and you get arrested for protesting, fine, but you do the thing that's right. Um, even, I mean, and I think that that's how you build the, the important kinds of courage is by teaching kids that there are consequences to courageous acts. And, and like, if you want them to be physically brave, you have to, you have to practice that. But if you want them to be morally brave, like you have to practice that too. Um, And, uh, and I I think that that's an important part of, you know, the game itself being 50 feet above the ground. It also makes it like, it reminds me a little bit of hockey Mm. that like, um, you know, you can play. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, I, people who are really good at hockey look like they're, pretty in control but it honestly like being on ice and going around that fast with like basically knives on your feet like um that seems pretty dangerous and it it kind of separates the risk takers from the not risk takers except i mean it it demands a certain amount of skill i don't know um it's it's like the physical version of what we do we're abstracting we're moving fast we're careering around we're not staying in one place and we're passing the puck to mm-hmm. each other. Okay, so one one last thought I want to try, and it's not really very well formed, so it's sort of like the troll, lumpy. Um, <laughs> I just want to kind of shoot it to you, Wes, because I know you were listening in on the um, the question of danger and its place in the schools, and this is something I talked about in my first lecture, and we've talked about a couple times on uh, at this school, because danger is prevalent at Hogwarts, and so it teaches some important lessons about the world, and I was wondering about the troll 
itself, the full-grown mountain troll that we run into, and whether it manifests at that time in the bathroom with Hermione, and I do see a parallelism between Hermione surviving in a bathroom where Moaning Myrtle died in a bathroom with Voldemort. Um, and I don't know if that was consciously done, but I think that's very good. That um, that's sort of that the the troll, and I think this might only be one aspect, not the whole symbolism of it, might have represented the initial shadow projection that Harry and Ron shot onto Hermione, not understanding her nature very well. And that what they confront in the bathroom, the place where you clean yourself up and thus clean up your perceptions, it has mirrors for reflecting in it, as well as water um, for coming to new understandings, like a baptism or a rebirth, a rebirth of understanding, is that what they got from between each other was that troll that perhaps Hermione had projected rule breakers, unsuccessful, bad onto Ron and Harry, whereas Harry and Ron had projected annoying, know-it-all, uh, un, like doesn't see the big picture on Hermione, and that they got that projection out from between themselves, They and now they can see themselves clearer, and that is what the basis of their true friendship is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, that makes sense. Uh, I like the the troll um, only is defeated uh, by their sort of like clumsy attempts to help each other. Like they don't have the skill at this point, but they do have the the attempt the the in intention to um, to rescue um, their friend. Perhaps and, like and the troll now. isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, sure, and that's like you do your best, right? But the troll isn't killed either, which is important, I think. And and they can't; they don't have the wherewithal to kill the troll. But um, the teachers come on the scene in time to um, to kind of clean up the mess, you know. So there is still something really important about having the institutional framework mm. around it. Their their ultimate uh, wall of safety, which can be breached, but then can sort of um, come back in. Uh, and, and clean up the mess. Very good. Oh, I really excellent. like that idea, Alex. Perhaps that's a prefiguration of, well, certainly of dealing with Fluffy, but also of dealing eventually with the ultimate representation of threat to society in the form of the dragons. Um, well, I think I. I think yeah. I think Sarah. I was just I was just I was just gonna say that I think what that brings up is like an it will be important later is that um, rather than attempting to defeat. Um, through like strength, be it intellectual or um, physical, what's what's always really surprisingly powerful is attempting to protect good or resist. You know what I mean? Like um, or pr like protect another person, uh, and sometimes allows a wizard to do yes. more than they would yes. be able to do when they go head on. Right. You know, and that's that's something that's also in the Lord of the Rings that like you. You, you rise above your station, you, you do greater things in defense of something good or resisting the corruption of bad rather than like facing the evil force head on it, using its own. Like, so do you, I don't yeah, know if that no, makes the charitable sense, aspect of it, the notion of sacrifice of putting, putting the action yeah. above oneself or even another person above oneself seems to give one access to some, some to additional strength. 
to a power that one I just really like that realize one seems to hit on like the archetypal energy source of the hero in that moment and can do things yeah. that one could not do with more selfish motivations um I wanted to say like hat tip really like the idea about that what did the, does the troll represent and the importance of it being in the bathroom but I never thought about that but that's really good Well, that seems to be another great reason to be doing these conversations. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I think there's another fantastic conversation. This is our fourth one, and we're uh, we're we're past the halfway point of this book. And so, well, if I look at this, should yeah, we? Go on. I was gonna say, should we? Should we close with like a like another silly question? Like, what? Because <laughs> I don't know. Like we. Well, I don't okay. know, we said like here, what house here, would here's, you be? Here's what? what we can close with. Then, okay. So what? First off. Would you all like to read 11, 12, and 13 for next time? Quidditch, The Mirror of Erised, Desire Backwards. And 13, Nicholas Flamel, who was a real alchemist. Yeah. Sure. sure. Well, they should have paid more attention in their history class. They would have figured this out by now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, well, so if we're going to do something silly, Sarah, well, you haven't weighed in on this yet. We have a, and so the audience should know that we have sort of a group text message that we, we share things on. I've been sharing funny Harry Potter Hufflepuff stuff lately. And I, I know we were recently asking you and Pottermore gave you a suggestion on which house you should be in, Sarah. But Wes and I yeah. were talking about what our wands would be after our conversation last week, what they would be made of and how Did long you... they were and what their cores would be and an aspect. Do the, did you do the, um, the wand quiz like on is it a quiz on no we just sort of i think we just sort of uh used whatever capacity for self-reflection we have at this point so perhaps we're very wrong <laughs> but uh <laughs> mirror yeah mirror of erised yeah. yeah mirror of erised um but um west do you want to start with yours i i really liked your description and and then i, mine, I can say mine and embarrass myself and perhaps sarah can make one up now or come up with one for the next time well, hey, sure. you know, sometimes a wand is just a wand. Mm -hmm. And that, so, okay, so mine, I thought I should have an oak uh, material, like, and then inside of it, I like the idea of having dragon's heartstrings. And uh, I thought it should be nine inches, and then it's going to be uh, knobbly, and <laughs> it's going to be good. It's going to be good for uh, occlumency. Um, which I think is just a fun word. Yes, so, the ability to mine. defend your mind, or yes, right. And from there's a there's a reverse word that is the ability to try and attack people's minds. Correct. And so I had said that mine would be, and so mine I said 14 inches in the same because Voldemort's was 13 and a half inches just to be part of the epic tradition of always one upping the one who came before, uh, which is something <laughs> that not only Virgil does with Homer but Dante does with Virgil and Milton does also with uh, Virgil and sort of Dante, though he doesn't uh, often engage with Dante, though he did spend time in Florence and so must have known him well. Um, and so, though afterwards, so known his work well. I said 14 inches, redwood, because I was born in San Francisco, and something interesting about redwood is that it's sturdy and can survive in almost any climate. So people like to build with redwood with a core of unicorn hair and uh a lot of whip to it <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of snap um but yeah that's what i would that's what my mirror of erised version of the wand 
Um, okay. Um, well, so I, I've taken the Pottermore ah. quiz on what my wand is. Um, so I can tell you, like, if I, if I hadn't, I actually, I think I took the quiz maybe like four or five years ago. Um, because I don't remember answering any of these questions recently. But um, if I had it off the top of my head, you know, I'd, I'd pick my favorite tree is a, is a pine tree. Uh, they're evergreen, um, which to me means they are, obviously they're, they're green all the time, but um, they're constant. Um, uh, they smell nice, though it's really hot in D.C., so I can't promise that that's true right now. Um, but they remind me of Christmas. Um, and that's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, I would want my core to be a Phoenix feather because I think Phoenixes are, um, uh, one of the most like independent and yet strong, like beautiful in weak, not weakness, but beautiful in their, um, sacrificial capacity. Um, I, I don't think we ever see more than one Phoenix in the entire story, but, um, their greatest strength comes in their their service to others, and I think I would, I you know, on my best days, that's the kind of um, life that I would aspire to. But I also can be like fairly, like kind of a alone, <laughs> like, and I like being alone. Um, and um, I don't know. I mean, what's the what's like the middle length? Um, we'll go with eleven inches. Um, Lily's was ten and a half. Lily's was 10 and a half. Fine. I'll be 10 and a half because she had red hair and I have red hair. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think mine would be, uh, flexible, but not, uh, not that like, what did you call it? It, it doesn't have wit to it. Like, <laughs> um, but like, um, not like open to ch- like willing to change, but also like, um, like pine, um, you know, ink something like real and true um perhaps it smells slightly different for each season yeah yeah well yeah hmm. for sure well that's anyway. well that's wonderful there you go well, i don't think that there are any pine wands in this world but um 11 inch pine, flexible but not whipping and yeah. <laughs> yeah or with with phoenix feather <laughs> core well, we're doing Phoenix important work core, here. Yeah. We're doing important work here. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is wonderful and um, another great conversation. And I, I hope to talk yeah. to y'all soon, maybe even as soon as Saturday. I know that uh, recently Wes, Wes uh, started editing the, the History of Western Thought page. And so his materials are going to show up there more. And he already started posting stuff. And that's already been great for moving things around. And maybe if you ever want to do that cool. too, Sarah, you can do that as well. And um Awesome. It's just, yeah, we're in motion and we're moving and we're doing great things. And well, let's keep it up. See y'all next. Sounds good. Until next time. Okay. Take yeah, it take it easy. Thank happy, have a good 4th of July. Oh yeah, yeah. happy 4th of July. Of course, it's the 4th of July. We're talking British literature, but perhaps ironically. Happy, happy treason day. Everyone loves fun. Fine. You know, again, you know, <laughs> following right. the meta rules rather than the rules themselves. <laughs> all, right. all right. I'll see y'all later. All right. Take okay. it easy. See you guys.